Thoth's Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Hello friends and listeners, welcome back to a new episode of the Thoth Hermes podcast. This is episode 6 of season 8 and today is Sunday, April the 3rd, 2022. It's my great pleasure to have you back here on the Thoth Hermes podcast to welcome our guest today, Chris Judice. Chris is going to talk us, to us about his new book, Occult Imperium, and we are going to speak about that just in a few moments. But first, let me say how grateful I am that you are here. And to all of you who are here for the first time, welcome to this podcast. Thank you to everyone also who has already become a patron of this show. Um, this is wonderful and it helps us to make this podcast sustainable. We need your support. And of course, now you know what's coming. I am asking all of you who have not yet become a podcast supporter, become one. Go on the Patreon page and look up the Thoth Hermes podcast with $1 per episode, you are with us and you really help with that a lot. Consider it buying me a coffee if you prefer. Okay, so that would be nice. I heard that works often. <laughs> okay, well, and uh, uh, if you want rather and can, or cannot find us on Patreon or want rather to see that on the podcast homepage, yes, do. Go on thoshermes.com, T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. And while you're there, not only find the donation or the Patreon buttons, but especially and first of all, go and look up all those episodes that you find there. All previous episodes are there. It's almost 120 by now. And you'll find them with the show notes. And also for today, of course, there will be show notes. I really tell you i think it should be a must to go there because you find all the links to our authors pages and some information about the author and what we present here so um, it's really worth going there thank you for that and while you are there leave me a feedback you have the possibility via voicemail even if you want if you don't want to write you know some of you don't like writing so leave me a voicemail there and if you prefer writing there is a page where you can send me a, a direct message or leave a comment to the particular podcast uh, or even send me an email at info at you can also find us on facebook and twitter and find information and a possibility to leave me a message there okay i'm trying to keep my intro and my intermediate talking a bit shorter here today because um, the interview is a few minutes longer and I have also a bit longer musical pieces. And well, to those of you who do not like classical music, I apologize, but today it's classical music. And for a certain reason, just because Chris Judice, as you hear by his name, he, 
he lives in London, but he is from Italian background. And the subject that he is treating with us here today is, of course, very Italian too. And I know that many of you who like the rock music we play and who like the also the um, more eclectic occult music, let's put it that way, uh, you also like Baroque music. I've heard a lot about that from you. And so today it is Italian Baroque music. Logic, no? Okay. And those pieces are seven to nine minutes long because you can't really shorten them. Would be a pity. If you don't like it, well, just use the chapter marks, jump over it, and um, go directly to the intro of the interview or to the interview itself. And all the others enjoy the music that we're going to hear here today. Um, it's the first piece is a concerto grosso. So a concerto grosso is a orchestral piece, small orchestra in the Baroque size um, by Alessandro Scarlatti. Alessandro Scarlatti, who lived in the 17th century and who composed this Concerto Grosso number one in F minor. And I'm sure, I'm sure many, many of you are going to enjoy that, enjoy that greatly. Um, the Concerto Grosso is performed uh, by Europa Galente. That's the, sorry, Europa Galante. Sorry, that's the name of Yoko. I should know better. It's my job. And also, an Italian ensemble, Europa Galante. It's conducted by Fabio Biondi. And well, let's just go in there and listen to it right away. Concerto Grosso number one for two violins, strings and basso continue in F minor by Alessandro Scarlatti. Thank you. 
Alessandro Scarlatti's Concerto Grosso in a great performance uh, by Fabio Biondi's Europa Galante Ensemble. Yes, and now we, well, we don't quite, yeah, well, of course we stay in Italy because the whole subject we're going to talk about is Italy, Italy, Italian time. Um, before World War One and uh, up to the 1930s, so to speak. And my guest today, as I said earlier, is scholar Chris Giudice. Chris, who has been on this show, I will mention that in the intro to the interview, twice in um, the former Ex Libris fo format, where we presented books. But now he is finally with us for a full interview. A highly interesting guy, Chris, is. And... This book he just uh, published, it just literally came out a few days ago um, with Oxford University Press, the famous uh, Oxford University Press who where, where they produce really, really fine academic books. And this one is really a part of the series on occult subjects. And I find it very interesting that Oxford University Press is now running uh, a series of books on occult themes, very, very interesting, inspiring books. And, well, the editor of that series is no, nobody less than um, Henrik Bogdan, who was also our guest here on the show in season five. You should, if you haven't heard his interview yet, you should really go back there and listen to Henrik speaking about his experience from the academic, but not only from the academic point of view. Well, let's go back to uh, Chris Judice and this book, uh, Occult Imperium. Occult Imperium. Um, and it's a book mainly about an author that uh, his, whose name is um, Arturo Regini. And he published this book. Um, well, I'll read you the... I read you a text from the book back. I think that's the best to explain what we are going to hear about here today. There it says, with this outstanding volume, Christian Judice is offering us the first academic monograph ever dedicated to Arturo Regini and his milieu. Erudite, wide-ranging, and yet eminently readable, the present study illuminates the cultural and political roots of fin de siècle and early 20th century occultism in Italy, up to and including the fascist era. By retracing Arturo Regini's intricate intellectual and Masonic journeys, Judice gives us a penetrating analysis of the entanglements of occult spirituality neo-pagan Roman traditionalism and an anti-modern political stance typical of the then cultural avant-garde in an Italy grappling with the seemingly unstoppable onslaught of modernity, nationalism and war. Occult Aperium, that's the title of the book, covers the life and work of Regini, Italian esotericist, translator of René Guénon, and author of the original Pagan Imperialism of 1914, a work that inspired the title and much of the content of Julius Evola's Pagan Imperialism of 1928. Occult Imperium, so the book we're going to hear, hear about today, Occult Imperium is recommended for all who have an interest in the history of traditionalism and also because it introduces us to the little-known Italian esoteric milieu from before the First World War to the Fascist period, 
milieu that both echoes and differs from the better-known French esoteric milieu of the same period. And I might add, it is a difficult, uh, it's a difficult subject, a difficult subject by the period that it talks about, because it was a very dark period in history. And of course, occultism played its part, not always positive part in that history. Um, uh, it was partly abused by those in power, but it was also partly because some of the actors uh, were not, um, didn't take their distances to what happened in fascism in Italy and, of course, as well in Germany and other places in the world. Um, we can only hope that um, society learns more from history than it has done so far. Right, without further ado, let's go and delve into that highly interesting interview where Chris talks about that period as an academic, about his book with his great knowledge on the period and gives us deep insight in Arturo Regini's life and period. Enjoy. Here comes the interview. I've just looked up a few minutes ago before starting this interview when our guest here today, Chris Giudice, was with us here on the show. He was with us on one of the early Ex Libris episodes back in August 2019. And it's sometimes incredible how time passes, but it's very, very good, Chris, to have you back on the show. Welcome on the Thoughts Hermes podcast. It's, it's so nice to have you. It's nice to be back. It's nice to be back. Time flies when there's uh, pandemics flying around. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, well, it was about time. We have planned that for quite some time because um, the immediate reason that you are with us here today is a book that is going to be released those days when we release this podcast. And um, it's also a book that has made us wait a little bit because that's also why we are meeting here so late because of the pandemic and all the problems with printing and paper and everything that was linked to that and still is partly um, that was delayed quite a bit uh, so i'm glad that we are finally here together and we'll be able to talk about arturo regini and your book about him and that period and we'll come to that in a minute but Absolutely. before that chris as you are finally here also on 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 the big interview, not not just presenting a book on Ex Libris, um, it's also time to talk about you yourself and your work. Uh, you have more and more uh, very well known person in the field of the Western esoteric tradition, and um, I think. Uh, um, we should talk about you and how it all happened that you came into that world, why you were interested, also what academic work in a terrain which is sometimes a bit difficult to, to walk in, uh, what that means, etc. I think we have plenty of things to cover. So tell us a bit about your background, which I believe must be Italian by your name, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, I'm uh, half Italian, half English, but I grew up in Italy until I turned 18. And mm. uh, then I came back to England uh, for my BA, which I did at St. Hughes College, Oxford. And the subject was classics. So it really had very little to do with like what I would end up 
doing later on in life. Um, mm-hmm. Classics was my first love and still is possibly my biggest love, um, especially Greek literature, uh, Greek poetry, Greek tragedy. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, for one reason or another, I didn't carry on in academia as soon as I finished my BA and I ended up working for uh, a major TV network for about nine or ten years back in Italy and then as fate would have it um, I remember coming over to London and buying a book at Watkins I can't remember what the book was but um, um They One give certainly you, remembers Watkins. <laughs> yeah, they give you they give you that uh, Watkins journal yeah. when you spend yeah. enough money, and I obviously like probably had spent like a lot of money there as as I always do. Yeah. And um, within the journal was um, a small ad for an MA course in Western esotericism. We're talking 2009, 2010, uh, a long distance in uh, a base at the University of Exeter. Exactly. And, that uh, was, that still existed then. Yes. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, that was like, uh, that was thriving back in the day. Mm. Um, and uh, so the minute I saw that, I just kind of, I just realized that I was going to drop drop the job and that I was going to do this MA full time, um, even if it was long distance and that I was kind of going to go back into academia. Um, I'd always been intrigued uh, by Western esoteric traditions and uh, I'd always basically, since the age of 15, 16, I'd read so much, I'd started reading so much and uh, So by the time we get to 2009, 2010, I think it was, um, I had a pretty good idea of kind of how the whole kind of tradition had been structured uh, in academia. You know, I'd read Francis Yates and mm-hmm. um, Antoine Fevre's 94 book uh, uh, he's just uh, died a few weeks yeah, ago yeah yeah Bless yeah soul. yeah absolutely yeah. absolutely uh, he was he was absolutely key in um, making me understand that there was a kind of academic approach mm. a serious approach to these to these subjects and uh, so um, like just reading his Uh, brief but really influential uh, articles on you know the academic approach and you know the six factors that consi- that uh, Western esotericism consisted of and uh, all these things really kind of made me rethink my whole uh, working life and uh, I just basically decided to give it a go and that was basically what put me uh, in touch with Nicholas Goodrick Clark. Okay. Who, uh, who then became my uh, my tutor, my professor for my MA, and um, that really kind of was the meeting that defined everything that was to come later. Um, and it was it was great. It was uh, I mean he also had gone to Oxford and he'd studied German, and then gone on to write books that I'd read in. Uh, books that I'd read when I was in my teens, uh, 
uh, about uh, Nazi occultism and the roots of Nazi occultism. And uh, uh, he, he also wrote a biography on Savitri Devi. And uh, mm. so I was like super um, happy to be working with such a luminary uh, in the field of Western hystericism. And um, we just hit it off immediately and um, corresponded and I kind of I probably called him uh, more than I should have uh, on his on his uh, office phone just for kind of random questions which then kind of turned into like one hour chats um, <laughs> but um, yeah he really was the person who kind of created a foundation like a, a new foundation for my academic career and kind of spurred me on kind of saying that I wasn't too old to start again and you know even mm. even though 10 years had passed you know I could still contribute and you know that my knowledge of languages and everything was something that you know probably would have done me good as as it probably did in the case of in the case of the book we're going to be talking about and um so yeah two years of masters there and then uh, during a conference in uh Seget, during an SWE conference, uh, European Society for the Study of Western Esotericism, mm-hmm. um, I met Henrik Bogdan. Yeah. And uh, we kept in touch. And then he sent me an email uh, saying that there was an opening uh, at his faculty for a PhD uh, position in religious studies. And it really encouraged me to apply and to. Um, uh, to actually write a proposal and everything, and which I did, and uh, it's Göteborg, right? His his university. Yes, yes, that was in Gothenburg, yes, in Sweden. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, in 2012, I started uh, writing my PhD dissertation, which then kind of has become the book that we're talking about. Yes. Uh, so that's yeah. kind of my trajectory in a nutshell. Yeah. Well, th- thank you. Um, I mean, we, we are coming back in, in a second to, to the relationship between academia and, and uh, the occult or the Western esoteric tradition. Um, uh, I'm going to ask you a question which you don't have to answer. I can even edit it out if you feel unhappy about the question. But um, um, did you ever also practice uh, any of the, of the traditional arts? In, in in the Western occultism, or is that something that you have a purely um, academic view on? Um, no, I I did absolutely. I I basically spent almost twenty years in a thelemic environment, right. uh, both uh, AA and OTO, and uh, um, so yeah, absolutely. There was there was a practical uh, involvement and um, but it really kind of it really didn't inform my choices on yeah. you know subjects yeah. in western esotericism I kind of um, I kind of developed a taste for it was kind of a springboard for like mm. developing mm. other interests as well uh, yeah. but absolutely I mean I think um, whoever in the Western esoteric academic milieu tells you that they do it purely for interest is like 
absolutely lying. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> everyone, yeah. Yeah. everyone has skin in the game. Uh, absolutely. And, Which uh, I, I personally, I'm not an academic. I believe it's it's almost a necessity as long as you can keep I the mean, things uh, apart. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's uh, it, if you, I mean if you have the chance to kind of participate, uh, you know, in. In, in what fascinates you, uh, I think that comes before even kind of having an academic yeah. interest in certain things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, or, or like Jake Stratton can put it, you would not expect from a theological professor at the university to be an atheist. You know? yeah, well, there you go. There you go. I mean, there are there probably are many who kind of become disillusioned and become atheists afterwards, but you don't expect someone to want to start a career in right. academia in the faculty of theology and be an atheist i, I think absolutely. that is kind of preposterous um, absolutely so absolutely yeah even though I, I i kind of not really close to that whole milieu anymore um mm. I, i spent a long time uh involved with uh with the lima and uh, right. so right. it's uh yeah. it was definitely a big yeah. part of my life Yeah. Um, well, we had uh, Henrik Bogdan, who, who you just uh, mentioned on this show, uh, I think it was a year and a half ago or something. We were also talking about that relationship and Carol Cossack a few months only ago. Also, of course, that was a subject that we talked about. And it's always fascinating to see the different approaches. And it has maybe become a bit less less tense, I would almost say, than it was uh, 10 or 15 years ago, that whole situation. Um, but on the other hand, we mentioned, or you mentioned, Exeter, uh, you also see how much those things often depend on one single person, because I believe the Exeter uh, course does not exist anymore because its inventor and leader died and there was nobody to fill in the gap, right? Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, I, I don't know the details, but definitely it was, it was kind of Nicholas's doing and finding the funding and everything was kind of Nicholas's responsibility and, you know, getting these amazing professors to come, you know, from Amsterdam, right. or from Denmark or from Germany to come over, you know, to deliver lectures and to kind of tutor us or, you know, read our mm. assignment, read our papers. Uh, I think that was kind of something that he, he managed to put together. I mean, Certainly. of course, of Certainly. course there was like, there was like help of his wife, Claire, of course, and, uh, other, other people. But, sure. Uh, no, you can't do that single handedly, but, uh, it needed that. But yeah, he was, he was, he was absolutely, he was absolutely at the time, uh, a beacon, uh, like in, in mm. the field of Western esotericism. Absolutely. And absolutely, yeah. Yeah. I was, yeah. I was like, so thrilled and in awe, you know, when I started, because it's just kind of moving from a stage of, you know, reading someone's books to the stage of like discussing someone's books with them, mm -hmm. you know, and, mm -hmm. uh, um, you know, discussing on where the faults are, you know, if there are any faults and what could have been done better and stuff like that, you know, it's, right. pretty, cra it's pretty crazy, you know, um, uh, at least at the beginning, it definitely was. Yeah. yeah. 
I have two little questions before we move on to our main subject of our meeting here today. Uh, one is uh, so the question I'm curious about when you were working for film and TV, as you mentioned, was uh, were you already in that field also um, uh, working on, I don't know, documentaries on the occult or so? Was that part of your work there or was it completely out of the... No, it was, uh, I worked for MTV, so it was ah, okay, pro no. well, proper, yeah, would, proper commercial. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Proper commercial right. and uh, uh, it, it basically uh, was a script writer and video, ah, okay. uh, video editor uh, there. Um, it was actually amazing uh much better than i'm probably like sounding now with the sound of my voice like mm. I, I, i loved it i loved those 10 years in milan um at the same time i think that the whole kind of video clip culture and uh the whole kind of fast montage and everything that i experienced in those years are what kind of really made me um get an interest and very early interest in into the works of people like um, Kenneth Anger or mm -hmm. Curtis Harrington and mm -hmm. uh, you know the American experimental scene basically yes um, definitely. it was something that really kind of you know predated they say that you know Kenneth Anger is the kind of grandfather of the MTV generation and, and it's true yeah, you know it's true absolutely. like his 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 films are like proper video clips you know it's like there's there's no talking there's music in the background there's rapid edits and cuts there's subliminal messages i mean that is basically the abc of any kind of 90s or noughties you know video clips so um, it's definitely something that um once i discovered that aspect i kind of delved into it and just kind of tried to discover like the most mm -hmm. obscure occult like filmmakers and right. of course Kenneth Anger and Curtis Harrington are two out of many John Meekus is another yeah. another one Harry Smith is uh, another name and there's just too many yeah. to mention Right. Well, to round up the, the, the image of Chris Judice today, I think we should also mention your publishing uh, that you're now doing. Um, yeah. That was also the reason why you were yeah, in the yeah, first yeah. place uh, two and a half absolutely. years ago on this show. So how is that going? That is going very well. Um, it's uh, the name of the press is Camaret Press and uh, it's the aim that I have with this press is basically uh, to publish books that I would have loved someone else to publish and uh, to, to, to provide me as a reader with. Uh, but uh, since no one else is kind of doing that, I decided that I would take it in my hands to publish kind of, let's say, minor classics of that fin de siècle occultist period. Um, so the first two titles were dedicated to Crowley's work, uh, but there's going to be uh, other publications uh, of works by Florence Farr uh, and um, works by other personalities, right, uh, probably right. lesser known personalities of the fin de siècle. And yeah, uh, yeah basically it's, it, it, it's stuff that I would like love to own a copy of, 
but uh, mm. I can't afford to have in the original probably. So like I'll just print it for me and another 300 misfits who happen to have the same yeah. obscure tastes. Well, Florence Farr, I, I am sure that will be very interesting because she's in my eyes, somebody really underrated nowadays. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, what is what the idea is basically to publish her esoteric plays. Mm -hmm. So it'll be like the theater of Florence Farr as opposed to other writing, which has kind of received right. wider attention already. Uh, yeah. But her plays are mind-blowing. Uh, there's Absolutely. so much uh, packed in I had the chance to read one of them, um, but I, I really was very impressed. So do keep us posted. Any idea when you will be ready with them? <laughs> um, there's the next book I'm working on is going to be ready for the Magical Women's Conference. Uh, that's ah, going right. to take place in London on the 15th of October. Um, right. I still can't reveal the nature of what it will be, but um, yeah, that'll be the next book coming out. Um, and then then we'll move on to Florence Far and other projects right. that I'm so already kind of year, working on behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we might, and I may say that here, we might meet again around absolutely. the Magical, um, also around the Magical Women's Conference because we have partnered with them before the, the, everything broke down and became virtual. And I think we got to revive that as well uh, once it's back live again. Absolutely. Right. So, but now let's move on to our, well, the, our main subject here, Occult Imperium. That's the title of, a, uh, of that book, and which, which is your thesis, actually. But I, even though it's not yet out in the world yet because it's somewhere on the Atlantic probably at the yeah, swimming yeah. between it's here been, and it's there. Been, it's been shipped from storage is what I've been exactly, told. So maybe exactly. by the time so, the podcast goes live it'll be it'll be available. Out. We make sure that will be the case and um, but I was lucky enough to have a, a pre-version a PDF uh, in not in my hands but on my screens and uh, um, it's a fascinating book and I may say uh, even though it is a, it is a master thesis um, it's it's a fascinating read it's not it's not dry or whatever because the subject is so interesting and you treat it in a, in a highly interesting and complete way published by Oxford University Press not the least uh, of publishers also uh, and and also that is an interesting sign that they have now that department at OUP, which is dealing with occult uh, yeah. uh, books led by Henrik Bogdan, actually. Yeah, that is, that is kind of Henrik's creature, you know, he's, uh, yeah, yeah. he's done so much for um, Western esotericism representation mm. in academic publishing. Um, he has a series for Paul Grave Macmillan. Yeah. Uh, which deals with neuroreligious movements with Jim Lewis, and he also has this series with Oxford University Press. Mm -hmm. With like, yeah, he's he's done so much, and it's, it's just it's amazing. It's lovely what's happening there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. So, um, well, I think it is fair to say that Occult Imperium and and uh, the story you tell here is based around one person mainly uh, as the main actor so to speak Arturo Regini and probably we should start by you telling us um, who was Arturo Regini I believe many of our listeners even though they are quite familiar with 
the occult world have never heard of him probably yeah uh i think italian occultism is uh pretty uh under researched outside exactly uh, Outside, yeah, it's pretty occult uh, outside of uh, outside of Italy. So um, yeah, that was one of the main uh, things, one of the main drives. You know, um, I remember talking to Nicholas um, shortly before he died, and I was trying to come up with a with a proposal. You know, for mm. for the PhD, and actually, it was kind of having a chat with him. Uh, on the grounds at Exeter and he was like you know why don't you do something similar to what I did with with Germany but with Italy you know like why don't you do something like you know the occult roots of you know fascism and uh, and we'll get to the reason why that is an impossible task but uh, so Arturo Reghini Arturo Reghini is was mainly um a mathematician and uh, a genius mathematician at that and uh, a Pythagorean, a neo-pagan, a pagan. He, w- he would have liked to be called a pagan, probably neo-pagan. Not neo, probably, yeah. No, exactly. probably would have made a skin crawl. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so f- first and foremost, the mathematician and secondly, mm-hmm. uh, secondly, a, a, a very uh, proud pagan um, yeah. the Pythagorean. Uh, can, can, can you tell us how you, and with him, of course, in mind, would define Pythagorean? Because, well, there are some small, very, very closed and secretive groups that call themselves Pythagoreans nowadays, which have politically nothing to do with what you just mentioned, but they are just, they are around, but they are very discreet. Um, uh, what exactly how exactly would you say what is a what is a Pythagorean in that sense in that esoteric sense well uh, that is kind of hard to say even mm. after having kind of read everything that Regini has written and everything that he wrote to his initiator and master Amadeo Armentano um, we know that there were um, spiritual and physical practices that were um, undertaken uh, at a special place in Calabria in the south of Italy in a in an old tower that Armentano had bought but we don't know exactly what what it was okay. they did um, what they do basically what the importance of the idea of Pythagoras um, for most of Regini's life uh, was basically to be found in the idea that um, there was a straight line of continuation going from Pythagoras, uh, who was considered by this group of occultists. Of course, it, cha- it changes, doesn't it, from <laughs> from every group, sure. to, from one group to another. But by sure. by this group of occultists of the Italian school, let's call it, uh, he was yeah. considered to be um, an Etruscan in origins who had basically um, then transmitted uh, his knowledge to King Numa, one of the kings, one of the seven kings of uh, Rome. And then this kind of initiatic knowledge had been transmitted down the ages and of course through Dante and then through throughout the ages through Mazzini and 
down down we come to to Regina and Armentano. So it was like a it was both a political and an esoteric kind of way of viewing a, a of life. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and uh, yeah. I think I think the two kind of the two things kind of blood the political and the, and the esoteric kind of blood. It, it's a kind of yeah. it was more of more of a, a lineage which gave you an outlook on life and a lifestyle. Yeah, more uh, than also legit, legitimation somehow. Also, it's, it was the whole package. Doing. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just kind of cherry pick. It was kind of mm-hmm. um, they um, they saw the Italian school, the, the Scuola Italica. They saw themselves as the legitimate successors of kind of the, the true Roman right. imperial idea of viewing yeah. Italy and of viewing what being Italian meant. And mm-hmm. of course, what being Italian in the 19th century, when Italy kind of reunified, yeah. you know, for the first time after centuries millennia uh was kind of pretty big thing italian yeah sure, sure was uh you know like like in all other nation states but probably a little bit yeah. more. i think, I think and, you can make a parallel with germany as well you know these, yeah, yeah, these, absolutely. these yeah, new definitely, countries definitely. these new countries which had just been kind of reunited after you know centuries of being tiny states you know Exactly, and uh, my my country Austria in the Italian case didn't play a very healthy role in that. No, uh, no, absolutely. Yeah. It was uh, yeah. You you were kind of in Regini's eyes, you kind of owned a part of Italy, which kind exactly. of need, needed exactly. to be kind of brought back into the fold, um, exactly. in order to kind of that was the whole idea to kind of get back to the sacred confines of the Italian peninsula the way they were the way they were back in the golden age of the Roman Empire right, and right. that would have kind of unleashed uh, supernatural powers to the kind of Italian soil um, okay. okay that was kind mm-hmm. of that was kind of a point of view so um, it's so we're pretty, talking about 1900, roughly 1900, 1910. We yeah, started we're talking about to be the early, early, the early 20th century. Yeah, yes. early 20th century. Because mm-hmm. uh, Regini was born in 78. So, mm-hmm. the, I mean, when Evola was born in 98. So, I would say mm-hmm. from the tens onwards, we, we kind of start to see um, this group of people yeah. act and become main actors in. Uh, in, in Italy, when it comes to when it comes to occultism, but of course, in the 19th century, there had been um, very prominent locally, I guess, uh, occultists or authors who had written about the primacy of the Italian people and mm-hmm. who had kind of provided Regini and Armentano and Evola and Kremmetz and all these people who would then flourish in the 20th century, provided them with a kind of um, with a foundation, a theoretical foundation, uh, mm-hmm. um, which then would have kind of given them ideas uh, to develop, you know, in, in, in the direction of this kind of uh, Italian uh, primacy, basically. Absolutely. So, but I, I, I pulled you away from his biography so to speak you were just talking about him when i pushed you into the pythagorean so maybe you would like to carry on with him his life and um, who yeah. he was basically um he um came from a very uh well-to-do family um and he studied at the university normale of pisa which is 
even today, very, very prestigious when it comes to scientific subjects. So mathematics was, of course, was pretty, um, pretty big uh, in Pisa and still is. Um, he wasn't the kind of keenest of students, even though like he he advanced quite easily, but it, it took him quite a while to, to get his degree. Um, mm -hmm. By then, he had already kind of discovered uh, occultism uh, in a way which kind of mirrors a lot of people of, of, the, of that age, basically, especially in, in, uh, in Southern Europe. Uh, there's a kind of similar trajectory to uh, Genon and a similar trajectory to Evola, who kind of discovered theosophy first and yes. had, you know, had this kind of first impact with occultism through the translation of theosophical works and working with, um, working with English theosophical, that's called the missionaries, you know, who would like, mm -hmm. who would like be, uh, probably, uh, rich, um, English people uh, posted abroad, posted in Italy, and uh, who would be into occultism, would be into, would be members of the Theosophical Society, and would start their own circles of uh, reading clubs and lending libraries. And so Regini was for a while the um, head of the Florence Library, Theosophical Library. Okay. So he had the time to. He had the time to read a lot of stuff, and uh, he also helped um, a friend of his by the name of Sulirao to translate some theosophical texts mm -hmm. uh, into Italian. Um, and uh, so he was very much active uh, in uh, in theosophical circles, and he was he was present uh, at the Theosophical World Convention. If I'm not mistaken, it was 1908. I could be mistaken, though. Anyway, at the Amsterdam uh, kind of theosophical gathering, he okay. was there and he presented a, he presented his lecture on optics and uh, occult optics and very kind of very brainy and very mathematical. Very uh, typical theosophical. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. This kind of like trying to combine, you know, the, the modern and, 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 uh, and the occult, you know, this uh, yes. very, very theosophical way of, of looking at things. And, uh, you know, for, for in, in a couple of articles that uh, Regini started writing um, in the kind of bohemian circles of Florence, where he kind of moved after, after his uh, university days, uh, he would uh, sign himself with uh, um, Indian pen names. Uh, that didn't last oh, right. for too long, but uh, uh, mm -hmm. there is a there is a letter uh, that was uh, that's extant, and it's a letter of Annie Besant, who writes to Regini from Aja to Florence, and uh, I guess we don't have the letter from Regini to. Annie Bazan, but he was probably complaining of the fact that um, astrally projecting uh, made his body uncomfortable, sitting in that position made his body uncomfortable. Okay. And so Annie Bazan was like, okay, slow down, uh, just kind of sit in that posture until you're kind of comfortable, and then you can start working on kind of... so. That kind of proves to us that, it, you know, he'd kind of, 
I wouldn't say climbed the ranks, but he definitely was in the know and he definitely knew the movers and shakers of, right. uh, of Italian theosophy and, uh, and international theosophy. Um, nowadays, he would just watch a YouTube video to get to it. Yeah, exactly. Or, or just write, you know, write in a, on a Facebook post, you know, why is my back hurting? But <laughs> exactly. thank, God, thank God they still wrote letters back in the day. And uh, yeah. so, you know, it was, uh, it was a pretty interesting environment. You know, there was... Um, members of parliament who uh, or future members of parliament who were theosophists and uh, mm -hmm. you know young um, intellectuals like uh, Regini or like Julius Evola who were theosophists so you know in the early 10s uh, up to the war I would say um, there's this uh, marked interest in kind of trying to ride this theosophical wave and of course Evola was um, also interested in the writings of Arthur Avalon and in Tantra. Yeah. So we have this kind of early fascination, which is very Canonian if you think about it. Um, this early fascination with kind of traditional form, traditional in, with the minor, minor T, with a small T, traditional forms of occultism, which existed, you know, all, all around Europe. Um, yeah. And then you kind of see a gradual uh, walking away from, from these positions. And well, what happens with, with Brigini is that he, he basically meets Uh, in you know one of his long nights boozing in Florence with his friends and you know literary and occult occult fellows, um, he meets this uh, person much younger than him who turns up to be Amadeo Armentano, and uh, he proposes to initiate Rugini into this um, millennial tradition. Uh, pagan tradition and also uh, a Thoktang tradition, Italian tradition. I think that was something that Regini kind of kind of really sparked Regini's interest. You know, like what you know is that is there an Italian spirituality? You know, um, is there like a national spirituality? And I think that really kind of um, got him interested in what Armentano had to offer. And in 1910, he was initiated. Uh, on the 21st of December at midnight, you know, one of these like really kind of, oh, right. uh, one of these uh, really kind of typical occult stories, you know, uh, and it was in the middle of this kind of uh, ravine near, in, in Tuscany, uh, where allegedly he was kind of suspended uh, with a rope and left there at the mercy of the elements, like for the whole night. Okay. And then, so he doesn't write much about it, but it basically changed his outlook on life. And yeah. he basically started um, to um, interest himself into um, Italian traditional uh, thought and uh, what this meant in the 21st century in the 20th century sorry and what this meant for previous authors in the 19th century which he kind of you know read thanks to thanks to uh, armentano uh, i mean armentano is like a completely fascinating figure himself he was a pianist uh, who was uh, studying uh, to become Uh, to become a professional pianist, and in uh, in Florence, he was from he was from Calabria, from the south of Italy, and he emigrated uh, to Brazil. 
and actually never came back. Uh, this was after the war, after the First World War. So um, it is a very kind of mysterious, mysterious figure. Um, but from what a lot of people, you know, wrote in their diaries and who knew him there was just like this awe and respect you know there was this kind of like aura of like um of knowledge you know of knowledge and uh assertiveness in him even though he was younger than most of his uh, disciples mm -hmm. um and uh yeah he's an absolutely fascinating absolutely fascinating figure this was again one of those interviews where it was quite hard to find a moment to break, actually. So, well, I just broke now. And here we go in the middle of the interview. I play you some more music. And as I promised, it will be Italian Baroque classical music again. And this second piece we are going to hear now um, is by uh, a composer, well, you might have heard his name, Corelli is his name. Uh, his name is Corelli and it's another Concerto Grosso, another Concerto Grosso. This time it is performed by uh, Trevor Pinnock's ensemble, the English Baroque soloists, and I'm sure that you're going to greatly enjoy that. Um, the It's in six short movements, Concerto Grosso number 11, um, of his opus six well for those who are really interested in classical music then we're going to return back to chris and continue our interesting talk on occult imperium his new book and all the background information on that not on the book itself of course but historically on the time that he is talking about difficult subject important subject and um, we should all be really aware of that of that period and um well after that uh, Another Scarlatti is returning, but this time not Alessandro, but Domenico Scarlatti, who was, I believe he was his brother. Domenico Scarlatti has composed that work, the last work we're going to hear today, which is Fandango, a Fandango. And, uh, well, that's the rest of this program. No, afterwards, of course, there will be the announcement for next week. So, once again, first we hear Corelli's Concerto Grosso in B-flat major. After that, we go back to Chris Giudice, and after the interview, it will be Domenico Scarlatti's Fandango, followed by the announcement of next week's program. Enjoy!
the beginning of the war, they'd started their own uh, Masonic order, which was kind of remodeled uh, along uh, Roman imperial, ancient Roman kind of lines, because uh, that was Regini and Armentano's idea was that basically real Freemasonry, not the 1717 Freemasonry, but mm-hmm. the real, yeah, sure. original, authentic Freemasonry uh, was actually um, uh, ancient Roman in in origin. And uh, uh, it's interesting that that uh, from what I know about Regini, not not about Armentano, but I don't know. Probably, uh, I don't know anything about Armentano before I read your book, actually. I hadn't even heard his name, to be honest. Um, but um, what I find interesting about Regini is that in, in, in that, what you just mentioned, his Masonic research, he went through uh, the Memphis Rite, I believe, in a, yeah. in a, in a kind of uh, deviated way down in Sicily. Yeah, it, was, it was basically kind of fringe rites all along. It yeah, was, but he was also even Supreme Grand Commander of the Scottish Rite in Italy at some point wasn't he what so he was yes Ricchini no 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 he he was never had he was never had of he was he was a member but never I mean he was okay so that is that the legend because the legend goes that he was right well he was never head of uh, he was never head okay. of, of the Scottish Rite. No. Okay, but uh, I was surprised to see that yes no he he, he basically moved uh, in what nowadays we call fringe masonry uh right. so smaller smaller rites where it was possibly easier for them uh to kind of infiltrate and kind of impose their superstructure exactly. of an of an italian would have thought yes. of an italian form of masonry um, um basically they didn't they considered freemasonry to be a good vehicle but it had to be the right freemasonry right uh, you know there was, uh, yeah. there was uh, a lot that Regini had a lot of problems with uh, with kind of uh, official Freemasonry of of either yeah. kind. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, so yeah, he was kind of stuck in the middle for all of his life, mostly. Um, right. But he always thought that um, it was the easiest way to impart initiatic knowledge, and uh, in a way, uh, if like if you think about. Crowley and Royce and, you know, the early OTO and uh, kind of structuring it along Masonic lines and structuring it along uh, Masonic style initiations. You know, it's probably uh, not an idea that only Regini had, you know, it's, I think yeah, it was pr- yeah, pretty yeah, common absolutely. in a lot of people yeah. to kind of appropriate a Masonic superstructure and kind of put yeah. their own flavor on top of it. Carl Kellner, who mentioned Royce, he was initiated actually in my Masonic Lodge, where I am a member of here in Vienna. Wow, crazy. Uh, um, But he he left before he became master's degree, you know, he he left Masonry again for the same reason he has just mentioned. He he didn't like the way that worked, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, and uh, it it was, uh, for one thing, the official Freemasonry was, uh, and here probably we're we get to the kind of anti-modern point. Uh, Freemasonry was considered to be uh, way too bourgeois. You know, it was, you know, Freemasonry was supposed to be, according to Regini, like an initiatic vehicle. But what he saw in kind of mainstream Freemasonry was a social club. 
and yeah, yeah, that yeah. kind of really didn't go down with him and uh, he just of course and even at the time especially in france also in italy and even a little later partly also in in germanic parts of of of, of the world um Freemasonry was very um liberal very much uh, trying to integrate everyone absolutely. into the same level and that was absolutely in a position to what what regini and, and also and also the freemasonry at the time was trying to also um integrate within italian culture so you yeah. would have kind of people uh, at public events in masonic regalia and regina would be like oh my god you know how dare they you know where their masonic regalia yeah. in front of like yeah. everyone you know like, everyone. what is that yeah, 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 yeah. what's this sure. profanation you know like even if they yeah. don't believe in it you know they don't yeah. have to yeah. like yeah. and uh so so it was just something that um yeah absolutely it was like totally progressive and totally yeah. um wanted to, wanted to kind of be included within kind of mainstream society exactly uh, mm -hmm. and like regina and armentano like despised mainstream society and the way that yeah. it was going so uh, definitely wasn't something for them absolutely you know? maybe this is the moment to to touch the difficult uh, question here and um, because you mentioned about italy not being so well known it's it's occult history a little bit we have uh, the same problem in, in in germany even though maybe it's more has been more researched uh, at least until recently since now uh others hans hans thomas hackel and you especially the two of you have really opened the field uh, to 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 the italian side um but um um of course this has also to do with the political developments in uh europe and in the fascist countries of europe in the 1920s to the mid 1940s and what they had made out of occultism and i know it's a very difficult thing and that's why it's so hard to touch that uh, but maybe if you would try to 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 talk a bit about that i think it's important what about uh, about occultism and the fascism on the on the fascism and what fascism made of those occultists yeah 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 of course, of course were they instruments or were they believers i mean, I mean what, that, that is that is actually not as hard as 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 it is for the german um for the german counterpart it's pretty easy uh to claim that uh italian fascism does not did not have an esoteric dimension uh that's kind of like pretty i have like no problem in saying that and i know that no one who actually has studied the topic thinks that um the actual idea that there is a uh, occult fascism or an esoteric fascism uh, esoteric form of fascism is um it's just not true it just uh that doesn't exist i mean the fact um Germany had people like, um, well, Germany and Austria. Uh, I consider I consider the, the the two together because of you know uh, because yes. of what what you know what we're going to be talking about uh, uh, you know the the Third Reich. But they had kind of figures that influenced the major players uh, mm -hmm. like uh, Guido von Liszt and uh, Lance yes, von Liebenfels. Sure. You know, in a small way, even much before before the actual effect. Yeah, in a small way they. They were in those kind of Munich circle, you know, they, the, their work circulated in those Munich circles where kind of the, the, the National Socialist Party started. Um, when it comes to 
when it comes to um, fascism, this is kind of the story. It kind of goes hand in hand with Regini's story. And so what happens is that when the, when war starts, um, these imperialists, uh, esoteric occult imperialists, you know, Regina Mentano and all, all the same, all the coterie of, of people who uh, were members of the Italic school, they all volunteered uh, to go and fight on the front. And, uh, you know, they, um, for cert- we know for certain that there was kind of uh, an occult um, attempt at influencing uh, the outcome of the war. You know, there's there's this letter that uh, Regini writes to Armentano at one point. Of course, they were divided on the front. Everyone was kind of in, in different in different space, different uh, places. But at the end of the war, Regini writes to Armentano. You know, in capital letters uh, throughout through our work. Uh, Italy wins and it's like wow you know like that's 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 a pretty bold statement and yeah. you know it's yeah. uh, it's pretty it's pretty impressive you know that um, uh, so much kind of um, occult will let's put it that way I mean I don't even think that they would consider it occult but let's let's call it occult for the sake of clarity um, yeah. they're kind of um view of the world and their practices geared towards uh, geared towards uh, kind of aiding Italy in the First World War, um, they considered uh, to have like an effect. And so after the war, when we got all the little bits of Italy that we were missing, and so the peninsula kind of had the same borders that the that, that Italia had under the Roman Empire, um, the idea was to... Um, influence um, society into kind of like mass initiate society into this kind of old tradition. So the way in which they kind of realized it could be done was, of course, once Mussolini rose to power, there there was a lot of things that kind of on the surface kind of looked very much in line with what with what with what uh, Regina and Armentano and in some and cases Ebola, yeah. in some yeah. cases Ebola, yeah. even though Ebola yeah. kind of tended to swerve uh, to kind of the German side like he he kind of ended mm-hmm. up considering kind of uh, Italian culture to be um he was very Bacofinian. So Italy was kind of uh, lunar feminine, while Germany was like solar masculine. So okay, he was definitely yeah. like more in favor of, of the solar masculine uh, <laughs> okay. power of the Third Reich mm-hmm. rather than, mm-hmm. you know, rather than fascism. But at the very beginning, so in the early 20s, when Mussolini rose to power, there was kind of like very kind of important things that kind of were happening that uh, gave uh, all of these players an idea that something could actually be done, you know, that that Roman religion could be reinstated as kind of the national religion. And we've got to remember that at the time, uh, the kind of the Vatican the, the Pope wasn't actually free to roam around. And there was this kind of 50-year rift between uh, Italy and the Vatican. And uh, 
that kind of was something that a lot of these people who had kind of volunteered to fight in the First World War kind of held at heart, you know, like a um, an anti-Christian, uh, anti-papal yes. stance, you know, very kind of uh, Ghibelline in a kind of... Did, did, did that anti-Christian movement within the occult uh, group mean at the same time to be pagan or was it just uh, um, anti-Christian as such? Yeah, I get it. Um, I think I think that there's there's a kind of uh, very European trend, like pan-European trend, in the same period. For uh, I think Marco Pazzi has written very very eloquently about this trend mm -hmm. uh, for uh, people to grow disillusioned with kind of mass religions and the occult having an appeal for that reason. Uh, he he kind of focuses a bit more on the on the British. Um, Uh, aspects of, of, the, of the occult fascination, but I think we can kind of uh, expand the argument to the whole of Europe, mm. and especially with the presence of theosophy everywhere, you know. Um, but, I mean, so theosophy, for example, even in the young Regini, I mean, that gave, you know, Blavatsky is clearly like anti-Christian, you know, like it's, yeah, uh, sure. even though, even though the, 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 Like leaders after Blavatsky are kind of like not as virulently anti-Christian as uh, as uh, as Blavatsky was, but I mean it kind of played into uh, Regini's imprint, which was already kind of lay and uh, anti-Christian to kind of um, have the occult being associated with you know the opposite of of Christianity, and yeah. you know he. He kind of considered um, Christianity to to be the usurper of uh, this kind of primeval pagan spirituality. You know, like he 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 wrote this letter. Um, he wrote this letter in reply to uh, an article that Mussolini had written on on a paper uh, called Capitol Hill and Golgotha and uh, where basically Mussolini is kind of comparing the comparing and contrasting the two in a kind of very ambiguous maybe I'm moving towards the church maybe I'm not kind of way and and, typical Mussolini yeah 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 and, and, and Regini goes nuts you know he's like how can you compare you know a, a little semi hill to this grand you know uh, hill which has yeah. like been the center of like an empire that has like governed the world for like a thousand years and right. uh, so for him basically it was like Christianity that was the usurper and you get that mm. mainly in his uh, article Imperialismo Pagano Pagan Imperialism mm. which I think is kind of like the fulcrum of all of Regini's kind of esoteric and political ideas. And that's why it kind of, I translated it and put it as an appendix in English. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's been translated for the first time in English, because I think that until you read, until you kind of read the whole of that article, which came out in a very obscure Italian occult magazine in 1913, you know, um, yeah. you're not going to basically grasp what he's getting at. Uh, but in that article, he basically, he gives you the whole story the way he sees it in a very kind of clear, aggressive, uh, no 
prisoners taken kind of way. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and so when it comes to fascism, to not kind of um, diverge too much from your question, when it comes to fascism, there were like loads of um, echoes of ancient Rome in uh, fascist celebrations, in kind of Mussolini's um, view of a third Rome. Uh, so basically a hearkening back to tradition to to propel, you know, the, the modern Rome to like a, to a new imperial status and everything. So, and, you know, there were kind of um, all sorts of um, occult movements that were kind of cheering on this kind of return to tradition right. and stuff. But of course, um, Italy wasn't really kind of hadn't been united long enough for it to be like a country that you could rule easily. So the easiest way that Mussolini could basically, the easiest thing that Mussolini could use to like put the whole country and kind of homogenize homogenize it would be the Catholic religion. Everyone was Catholic. So basically in 1929, he signed the Lateran Accords with with the Pope. And basically that was the end, you know, of the, of the pagan dream. Right. Kind of making it really short. But, um, uh, so there was a kind of mixed, uh, mixed relationship. We know that Regini met Mussolini. And we know that Regini was on, like, the Mussolini had a Jesuit priest uh, called Tacchi Venturi, actually the um, great niece of this Jesuit priest was in uh, my in class with me in high school. And I, I just found out, like, recently that she was actually related. Yeah. But anyway, this Jesuit priest was, like, hated Regini with a passion and he was like right hand man of Mussolini's and he had this kind Mm -hmm. of prescription list of all the Masons, all the communists, all the anarchists, all the people that would have to be either killed or sent abroad in exile. And Regini was like number one of the list because he was so vocal and so unapologetic about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, we know that Mussolini told uh, Taki Venturi, the Jesuit priest, no, you can't touch him. He is one of ours. He's like imperial. He's one of ours. So we know that, okay. you know, there was that kind of protection on one side. But on the other hand, after this kind of rift between the occultists and the, the, the fascist party, which was like so brief, it almost never happened. Um, mm-hmm. Regini, who basically taught mathematics as his main job in life, um, wasn't allowed by the uh, by the state to uh, teach in public schools. So he had right. like, it was so hard for him to find a job in a private school. And like in the end, he could only find a job in a, fre- a friend's private school near Bologna, which is why he then mm. moved away from Rome to Bologna and why right. he died basically where he died and why he's buried where he's buried. So it's kind of, um, there was a kind of brief flirtation, but the moment uh, Mussolini hated Freemasonry and hated Masons and well, like any dictator, you know, like any, anything that's secret and anything that happens, you know, not, not in the open air, you know, like you're going to be paranoid about it, probably rightly so. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so the black shirts uh, in 1925, there was the 
official ban on Freemasonry and the black shirts yeah. like went into all the Masonic temples and destroyed, you know, and set them on fire, destroyed it, and you know, mm. uh, fascist violence against against Masons and everything. There was some sort of persecutions against um, against Masons. Mm. So there was like an actual law uh, passed by this. Um, politician called Bodrero and uh, who actually published a kind of uh, expose on Freemasonry in 1925. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's exactly the parallel movement in Germany as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Austria. I mean, and so it's kind of funny that these people, um, in a way, I can see how they kind of fell for it at the beginning because all the trappings were there, you know, all the kind of uh, Roman Empire trimmings, you know, and the statues and the new Colosseums mm -hmm. and, you know, the, the new uh, area that Mussolini built in Rome, uh, EUR, right. for, the, for the Universal Exposition, uh, you know, it was all made in marble with marble buildings and it really still does, like, it looks like, that's where Fellini filmed a lot of his yeah, kind of dream sequences exactly. and stuff, you know. So it, it really looks like a, ancient Roman area of Rome, mm -hmm. you know, like with these like mm -hmm. marble buildings and statues and obelisks, um, you know, yeah. it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. So I can see why these people actually kind of fell into the, into the trap. But um, yeah, after 29, uh, people emigrated, Armentano went to Brazil. Uh, Arigini was basically lived in poverty uh, as many occultists end up doing. Um, teaching in this private school in uh, near Bologna and uh, and that's it really so the, I mean there were people who were fascist and had occult leanings um, there was a school a fascist school of mystic thought uh, created by this guy called uh, Bertorici but um, Mussolini was you know he came from social, from like real socialism. He was an atheist. He didn't. He, he didn't have time. Yeah. He didn't have time for this yeah. bullshit. You know, it was. Yeah. There yeah. were like bigger yeah. things, yeah, yeah, yeah. bigger things at, at play, and bigger things to do. Yeah. So he yeah. really had no time for these people after twenty nine. You know, if they probably served a small purpose at the beginning, uh, in the first, let's say, five years of his uh, of his uh, uh, government. Um, after that, after 29, it basically, uh, yeah. basically stopped. Yeah. And, you, and you don't have a, you know, you don't have an Italian Himmler, you don't have an Italian Fevelsburg, you don't have, right. Uh, right. you don't have anything that has kind of anything to do with any mystical kind of way of looking at fascism. You just, you just mm -hmm. don't have that. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe we should. Uh, still, we have a little bit of time left. We should still talk a bit about the influences that he received. I'm mainly thinking about René Guénon now, uh, I think, who was a strong influence on Regini, right? Yeah. And maybe also on the influences that he gave. It is yeah. said that Evola learned a lot from him. Uh, I don't uh, know if that's true. Uh, yeah, yeah but, it, is, um, it is true. It is true. It's, uh, it's yeah. a kind of very troubled relationship, uh, the one between okay. uh, Evola and Regini. So mm -hmm. let's start with Genon. Um, Genon had met uh, Armentano and uh, Guerrieri, who was another member mm -hmm. of the Italic school, in 1910. They'd gone to Paris to meet him uh, because interested in, in, in the work that he was doing in the articles mm -hmm. that he was publishing and they were in Paris and they, they, they went to meet him and uh, um, 
Ganonte tells that to uh, to Regini in his letters, uh, so we know that for a fact. And uh, it, it's Armentano who puts the two in in touch. And uh, I'm very very uh, grateful to uh, the Ganon family for the access that they gave me to the to the correspondence between Rene uh-huh. Ganon and Regini. There's a lot of stuff in the book that's like never been published before. And Great, for, yeah. for that, I'm really really grateful to the heirs of the Ganon estate. Um, mm-hmm. And basically, the, the, there was mutual respect between the two of them. And uh, basic, the, the difference between the two is that Ganon didn't believe in uh, European Eurocentric uh, renaissance of tradition, while Regini following Armentano was kind of like, yeah, we're doing it here and we're doing it now. Mm. And, uh, you know, we're doing it in Italy. And of course, there's a transmission and it's unbroken. And of course, Genon then uh, joined uh, Sufi uh, order while, you know, Regini went in in his direction. So, but they corresponded even after that and they were very cordial with, uh, and Mm Genon was translated by Regini and published in some of the occult journals of of today uh, in uh, Mm -hmm. Ignis and Atano. Atano, yeah. yeah, He translated uh, The King of the World. Uh, Roi du Monde. Mm-hmm. It was actually came out in, in Italian uh, for a freak accident. It came out first in Italian. The first segment came out first in oh, Italian. Oh, really? Done in French. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so they kind of like were very much in touch, and they they very much kind of um, you can you can tell by the excerpts that I've, that I've mentioned in the book. They very much both thought that Evola was kind of a bit um, full of himself, and uh, mm-hmm. um, that he was. Uh, he he wasn't too good with languages, with ancient languages, and they, at one point they mock his uh, knowledge of Greek. Uh, so there's kind of this, you know, like Ganon saying, "Oh, this guy Evola just wrote to me, you know, like can you tell me a bit about him?" And uh, Regini and Evola were kind of uh, already drifting apart, and uh, right. So there wasn't uh, he wasn't too complimentary. Um, in talking, in talking about uh, Evola. Um, so, yeah, um, the, I mean, there was a lot that I think Regini found in Genon, uh, but like nothing new that he hadn't found in Armentano. I think, I think that's kind of like the, the ideas, like the main tenets of traditionalism, uh, as you can glean them from, you know, a text like uh, Mark Sedgwick's, for example, his, his book on mm-hmm. traditionalism. You know, he, he kind of breaks it down to um, like core elements and what kind of what represents uh, traditionalism. I think uh, I think Regini had already learned uh, all these kind of views of the world, this kind of Weltanschauung from Armentano, and he just kind of had it mm-hmm. confirmed by Genon. At the same time, Kenon was one of the few, you know, when Kenon was the founder of traditionalism proper, like Kenonian traditionalism, hence the name. So um, I think it was kind of lonely to be a traditionalist back then. And uh, Mm. in one of his last um, books on Pythagorean numbers, uh, which were published um, during his kind of exile in this small town, 
or just before going there, uh, he wrote to one of his friends. He was like, uh, you know, I wrote this num this book on Pythagorean numbers. Uh, I don't expect uh, many people to understand much of it. Uh, there's probably one or two people in Europe who could properly understand it. And one of them's Genon, who's like, who's moved away, you know, he, he was li okay. living in Paris. So it was like, wow, you know, like it was, it was kind of like these two giants of traditionalism, but there were like yeah. so few traditionalists around that there was like, uh, they, they only had themselves to communicate with, you know, and Armentano was uh, in, and in they Britain. didn't have the internet to talk about it. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> these letters yeah. took so long to arrive, you know, and, uh, yes. and they were kind of sending uh, these occult journals backwards and forwards and, you know, Ganon would kind of make corrections to, it's a really interesting correspondence. When it comes to uh, Evola, of course, Evola is uh, born in 98 and Regini was born in 78. So, Regini yeah, is, Regini is, you know, it's two, two different generations. Uh, Regini is already very much set in his tracks when Evola starts making his first mm -hmm. um, lectures at the um, Theosophical Society um, and uh, the Theosophical Circle in Rome, it was called. And... Um, so for a while, they were pretty much on the same wavelength and uh, they basically had this very kind of uh, autochtone ideal of kind of ancient Rome. And, uh, um, and then there was a rift which was caused by personal problems with um, Regina's disciple, uh, Parise, who basically started a relationship with uh, one of the most prominent feminists uh, of the day, Sibilla Leramo, who was Evola's yes, ex. Sure. So there were like frictions yeah, on that yeah. side and uh, yeah, doctrinal yeah. frictions as well with Evola kind of starting to develop this kind of um, pro-Aryan kind of solar masculine versus kind of this kind of Bakufinian view of the world. Um, so basically, um, there was the rift happened when Evola published a book called uh, Imperialismo Pagano, which was the title of uh, Regini's most famous long yeah. form article, you know. And uh, so there was, like, of course, courts and justice involved and um, very kind of boring things. But um, I think from then on, it kind of the two went in completely different directions. And uh, right. uh, I think Evola was um, a bit more shrewd. Um, and he, he basically was um, so close to Nazi ideas that he kind of um, was considered to be a problem by the fascists, but at the same time, he was like so far to the right that they had more problems to consider to the left, you know, to, to you know, to, to kind yeah. of repress. So he, he kind of got left alone and he, throughout the thirties, he started his own um, journals. Uh, I'm thinking of mm. one called La Torre, probably one of the most yes, famous sure. way he could yeah. like carry on with his uh, ideas, which, which obviously changed. I mean, Evola's ideas when 
when people think of Evola, they think of, you know, this right wing philosopher, but his ideas yeah, changed yeah. so much from the 1910s to the 1960s, you know, uh, yes. it's, you know, you, you just change, you know, you change by life. And uh, so mm. basically, I would say that after 29, it's basically every, everyone went in their own direction. And Armentano went yeah. to Brazil and Regini went to Bologna, Budrio and uh, Evola stayed in Rome where he kind of really yeah. lived a carefree uh, existence yeah. until yeah. until yeah. the incident he had in uh, in Vienna, actually, uh, yeah. which uh, Vienna, which caused him to yeah. Yeah, be, uh, mm -hmm. caused him an injury and, you know, left him yeah, on absolutely. a wheelchair for the rest of his life. Exactly. Well, it's fascinating. And uh, you mentioned one person, um, Kremerz, who was also in, not so much in that school, but also an important Italian occultist yeah. of, of the period. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's, I mean, he had, um, th there was a very strong connection between the Kremerzians and the uh, Armentano's Italian school. And uh, okay. um, during um, the heyday of the occult journals in the mid 1920s, you know, when, when they were kind of really thinking that this could be pulled off, you know, this could happen, this kind of uh, pagan renaissance could actually happen. Mm -hmm. um, there was this editorial experiment called Ur, uh, which yes. was uh, an occult journal uh, where different strands of occultism, like for the first and possibly last time, uh, at least in, in the Italian milieu, came together. So you had kind of, mm. you, had, you had anthroposophy and you had uh, Cremertian people, followers of Cremert, yeah. and you had uh, Regini and uh, people of the Scuola Italica, and you had Evola. So you had all these mm. people talking about uh, magic and occultism, and they were so more knowledgeable than the average occultist today is you know they, right. they, would, be, they would be quoting like you know the chaldean oracles uh, in the original yeah. and stuff like that and you know it, it oh, was yeah. it was a really kind of brief but super intense experience that brought together all these people and yeah. uh, still is partly a fascinating read actually. oh absolutely yeah. i think i think it's uh i think it's something that possibly hasn't happened in the same way uh, in, in the English, you know, in, in the English language or, mm -hmm. or in the German yeah. language or in the French. I mean, it really would be like bringing together in one single journal, like, you know, the, the, the heads of like all the occult movements of like one particular. Mathers, Crowley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mathers, Crowley, uh, Fortune, uh, exactly. you know, like all, yeah, all of these, yeah, like all together, yeah. you know, and, yeah, uh, yeah, and yeah, Blavatsky yeah, or Blavatsky yeah. or whoever after Blavatsky, you know, like yeah. bringing them all in yeah. one journal and trying to harmonize it yeah. all. And uh, it's crazy because it actually, it actually worked. I mean, it's, uh, the journal is uh, still to today, like a masterpiece of uh, occult yeah. Knowledge. Uh, Do you know if the group Bodur, this UR, U -R, is that an acronym for something, or what? What did the name mean? Well, the, the name is the, the the root word for fire. In uh, oh, okay, in, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, so uh, basically that was that was kind of like the the the, the, the idea behind it. You know, the creation because mm. before there was. That there was another magazine that was called Ignis, so that also means yes, fire. Sure. That, that's that was yeah. uh, created mm -hmm. by uh, by Regini, and then there was uh, a journal called Atanor, 
and then after Art- Art- which Art- is Art- another, Art- uh, came, fiery came thing. Yes. Yeah. And uh, yeah, 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 yeah. basically, it's uh, yeah, it's. Uh, the most, I think, the most fascinating when you when it comes to Italian occultism, the most fascinating kind of exper- experiments, and it, it was kind of a group where, um, yeah, going back to your question, where uh, Giuliano Kramer's disciples um, uh, came together and kind of uh, uh, wrote side by side. Uh, with the yeah. Scuola Italica, and uh, of course, mm. Kremers, you have um, you have Isaac healing magic, uh, but you also yes. have uh, a, an, a kind of Osiridean aspect to his magic, which is kind of self-deification, which is obviously what the ultimate aim of the Scuola Italica was being a Pythagorean school, you know, to perfect yourself, uh, right. to, self def- to right. become a god, right? To, a god, to, yes. Yeah. So, um, mm-hmm. so there's a lot of points in common between the um, Cremercian circles, especially the Roman one in the 20s and the Scuola Italica and the members of the Scuola mm-hmm. Italica who were in Rome, like Regini and other people, yeah. uh, we, yeah, we know yeah. for a fact that they, they met each other and they knew of each other's mm-hmm. work. And yeah. and uh, uh, Well, I'm, I'm sure in, in, in this podcast in, in a few months, maybe still in this season eight, also depending on how the publishing of books carries on those weeks and, and months. We will speak about Kremers again uh, with an author because um, there is a bit of Kremers renaissance as well happening with Inner Traditions, for example, who published a book recently by Kremers. Oh, that's really good. There's a book about, about Kremers coming out there as well soon, so we might do something about him. By an American scholar? Yes. Oh, yes, fantastic. I... Can't tell you right away the name now out of my mind, but um, we will hopefully hear more about it. That's really good. I mean, it's uh, Kramer is really an underappreciated uh, master. Uh, of I, I would think tradition. so. Uh, Absolutely. I would think. I would think so. Uh, well, um, this was a fascinating seventy-five minutes with you, and Chris. It was really about time, and it's great that we finally were able to do that. Thank you so much for your time and for your knowledge and for your way of explaining things which are not always easy to handle and to explain. And I, I am really glad that uh, you, you came here and, and I can only, I can only invite everyone to, to get that book. It is, we, I must say it as it's uh, Oxford University Press, it's not going to be cheap um, as most academic books, but it's certainly worth its price. I can only say as much. And um, you should really, you should really get hold of a copy of that. It's, it's really worth it. And um, uh, thank you for talking to us about it and to, to make it a bit more, fam- also a bit more familiar with the Italian um, occult history of that of that difficult time uh, in european and world history thank you for inviting me i love being here thank you thank you
Fandango by Domenico Scarlatti. I hope you really liked it. And I believe I had not told you who was the performers. This was performed by uh, on the chamber of Genoveva Galvez. And uh, uh, she performed on a cembalo that was um, built after uh, an ancient cembalo from the 18th century. So that's always very interesting when they make copies of ancient instruments for today's performances. Okay, um, I hope you liked the Baroque music from Italy, from 17th century Italy. Um, it's of course not quite the period that Chris and I were talking about, but um, well, for traditionalists that we were talking about, maybe that was an interesting period as well. And um, I hope you enjoyed the interview with Chris mainly because that was the aim of the episode. And um, if you enjoyed, and thanks, Chris, for your time and doing that with us here. Um, if you enjoyed, I hope you will come back next week. And what are you going to hear next week? Well, something that I believe many of you will be really interested in. Um, René Le Forestier, the famous French, well, famous for those who, who really are deep into those stories, um, he wrote the only really historical book in the early 1920s about the Bavarian Illuminati. The Bavarian Illuminati are the real, the true Illuminati, where the name Illuminati comes from and, um, well, everything stupid uh, in those conspiracy theories that has been derived from that. But um, the original Bavarian Illuminati were a really highly interesting society. And this book is now finally, finally um, available in a really good, good English translation by John Graham, um, published by Inner Traditions. And uh, it's a real nice book, 900 pages, a real brick. And John Graham who has translated that and who is practitioner himself and uh, knows a lot about historically about those periods as well. He is my guest next week on this show in episode 7 to be released on April the 10th. Right, so that was it for today. Thanks for being with us. It was a little bit longer here today than usual, but I hope you enjoyed it nevertheless and um, I send you all best wishes for the coming week and take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.